Good morning, Christ City Kids in South Vancouver. My name is Jonathan, and I'm one of the elders at Christ City Church. It's my joy to be able to bring you today's message. Let's pray. Father, it's such a privilege to be able to, uh, to have your word and to hear it preached and to preach it. Father, would you help me to be able to articulate the truths that are in your Bible well? And would you give us receptive hearts that we might be able to apply your truths to our hearts? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A few weeks ago, my kids and I were glued to the TV as we watched live coverage of the Dragon spacecraft on its way to the International Space Station. On board were two U.S. astronauts, and we, we were awestruck as we, as we counted down the seconds and we watched this launch happen with, with such precision. The first sta stage propelled the rocket to the outermost parts of the atmosphere before falling back to Earth for a precise landing on a drone ship. The second stage, along with the Dragon crew module, continued on to the International Space Station, docking with it many, many hours later at a cool speed of 27,600 kilometers an hour. An awe-inspiring feat, no doubt, to take two human beings to transport them outside this world to an outpost whizzing around the, the planet at incredible speeds to have them emerge safely in an environment not normally suited for humans. Surely this was just dreams of science fiction writers a century ago. We get excited about stuff like this, not only because it stirs the imagination and because we get to, to figure out and appreciate all of the mathematics that you learned in school, but because of its great mystery. You see, space remains this great unknown. And it's no wonder that shows like Star Trek call it the last frontier. Yet for all of its awe, for all of its awe, this pales in comparison to what we will be talking about today. After all, we can, we can explain with complicated math trajectories, uh, rocket science, and we can conceive, at least in theory, how space travel works. But the incarnation of Jesus Christ, this mystery of how the pre-existing creator the one who spoke the world into existence, who has existed with the Father since before time began, could become a human being, one of his creatures. This mystery of how the prophesied Messiah, prophesied as early as Genesis 3.15, could become a reality exactly as was spoken. This mystery of how Jesus could be fully God and fully man. Surely this is the greatest, most awe-inspiring mystery ever. It is the greatest miracle mankind has ever seen. This miracle would change everything. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is foundational to what we believe. My aim this morning is to inspire you to marvel at the mystery that is the incarnation of Christ to exhort you to consider its purposes and to tease out and highlight some of its implications. I want to inspire you to marvel at the mystery that is the incarnation of Christ, to exhort you to consider its purposes and to highlight some of its implications. 
we get a sense of the awe-inspiring mystery of Christ when we try to, to hold in tension the realities of his incarnation. You see, on the one hand, Jesus is fully God. The Bible is very clear about his divinity. John 1.1 1, 1 proclaims that the Word was God, with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Philippians 2.6 testifies that Jesus was in the form of God, implying that he is equal with God. Perhaps most compelling is what Jesus said of himself in John 8.58. Rebuking the Jews, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Reminiscent of how God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14. In every sense, Jesus is equal with God, present with him since eternity past. Equal in every measure, quality, and characteristic. Hebrews 1.3 confirms this, saying that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus spoke of when he would sit on his glorious throne in Matthew 19, 28. Paul declares that God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus in Romans 2, 16. But Jesus is not only God because of these declarative statements. His divinity is also evident in his works. Jesus healed many, including the centurion's servant in Luke 7, 7, which he did from afar just by uttering a word. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John eleven thirty nine. In Matthew 9, 2, Jesus forgave the sin of the paralytic, something only God can do. Jesus' divinity can also be seen in his titles. He is the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty in Revelation 1.8. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the A to Z, as it says in Revelation uh, 22.13. He is Lord, to which every knee shall bow, in Philippians 2.9-11. In 1 Timothy 6.15, he is declared to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All of these titles are consistent with God alone. And yet, at the same time, Jesus is also fully human. The Bible affirms the humanity of Christ. Jesus' incarnation was prophesied extensively throughout the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New. John 1.14 says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, of course, was a baby. He was born of the Virgin Mary in Luke 2.7. We get a glimpse of how he grew up as a human being. Luke 2.42 gives us a glimpse of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. Hebrews 5.8-10 teaches that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Think about that for a moment. Jesus had to learn obedience through the school of hard knocks, through suffering, just like the rest of us. John makes clear in 1 John 1, 1 through 4, that the apostles heard, they saw, they touched Jesus. Paul emphasizes that the resurrection of Jesus was a bodily resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And this means that right now Jesus remains fully God and fully man. There is a bodily Jesus that is united with us, that sits at the right hand of the Father, and that is interceding for us. 
But Jesus was not just a human being in the physical body sense. He was and is fully human, body and soul. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect, as it says in Hebrews 2.17. We get a glimpse of Jesus' humanity as he wept with his friends Mary and Martha when they mourned the death of Lazarus in John 11.35. His human will and his emotions were on full display at the Garden of Gethsemane just before he went to the cross in Mark 14. 34. It is when we contemplate how Jesus can be fully God and fully man that we enter into mystery. How can, how can Jesus exist as a person of the Trinity in perfect union with the Father and the Holy Spirit and yet also exists as a human being, body, and soul. How can the one person of Jesus Christ have two natures? How can lion be called the lamb? Creator of the universe, dwell with the created. How can Jesus, who tells us of the many rooms in his father's house, have no room at the inn at his birth? How can the king of kings, the purest of pure, be born in an unclean, stinky animal stable with a feeding trough as his bed? How can the one on whom we depend, in whose name we pray, be the crying baby whose diapers and swaddling claws Mary had to change? How can Jesus Christ, who is so infinitely high, condescend so low to be despised and rejected by men? How can the majestic be so meek? How can Jesus, who is named Judge, who has every right to exact full and infinite justice, be the one who would offer us infinite grace? We can hardly, hardly comprehend this. And yet, if we diminish one or the other, we do not have the Jesus of the Bible. In nearly all historic instances of trying to explain this mystery, people have committed this error. Some propose, for instance, based on Philippians 2.7, that Jesus emptied himself, that somehow he shed his divine attributes in order to become a human being. And yet if we view Jesus as merely human or anything less than fully God, then Jesus becomes but a good moral example and he lacks the authority to be our Lord and Savior. On the other hand, if we diminish his humanity in any, in any way, we run into the heterodoxy of docetism. His suffering and sacrifice could not have been real, only apparent. Or if we say that Jesus is not two natures in one person, but two persons, then we run into the heresy of Nestorianism, placing into question the agency of his actions. Or if we say that Jesus is but one nature or a different nature altogether, then he is not fully 
human. And so we must hold all of these truths in tension. Describing the what without necessarily understanding the how. Jesus is both lion and lamb, God and man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And yes, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, admittedly, we've been whizzing around the Bible as if we were astronauts on the space station trying to take in the beauty and the mystery of Earth's sights. And there is beauty and mystery from afar as we look at the tensions of the what's and the how's of the Incarnation. But beauty is not only found from afar, but it is also found up close. And so I want to spend a few minutes looking at one final aspect, the why. Why did Jesus have to become a man? And what are the implications for us? Why did Jesus have to become a man, become a human being? And what are the implications for you and me? You see, the Bible is very clear about the why. And its clarity is revealing because it informs us about where we ought to place our priorities and how we ought to respond. The why of the incarnation is foundational to our faith. Jesus became a human being for one reason alone, and that is to accomplish our salvation. He was born to die. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, meaning Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Commenting on this, Theologian George Guthrie writes, Since death was the prescription for victory in this case, the only way the Son could accomplish the needed task was to die, and the only way to die was to become human. In short, it was the only way our loving and holy God could, could, would be able to save us, would be able to save us from our sin and restore humanity back to the way that he had intended. Now, this is worth pondering. You see, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, sin has been a pervasive problem. Romans 5.12 says this, Just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, Death is not part of the original created order. It was a consequence of sin entering the world. Likewise, the fear of death has been the tool that the, that the devil has used to grip humanity ever since the fall. In fact, it has enslaved us. The late secular cultural anthropologist 
Ernest Becker, prize-winning author of the book, The Denial of Death, would agree. He writes this, quote, the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the, fat the fatality of death, to overcome it by dying in some way that it is the final destiny for man. Ernest Becker gets a large part of the problem right, and yet his explanations offer no hope. Jesus does. He willfully took on a human nature in order to liberate us from this final destiny. Instead of denying or escaping death, though, let's be honest, he uniquely qualified to do so, he chose to embrace it. And he embraced it through his incarnation. Instead of avoiding suffering, he pursued it. Instead of being served, he chose to serve. In every way, Jesus demonstrated his full humanity so that he is uniquely qualified to lead us to victory. In fact, it is because of Jesus' incarnation that we can find our greatest hope and comfort. And so let me unpack just a few implications that this has for us, that the incarnation of Christ has for us. First, Jesus' incarnation reminds us of how great God's love is for us, that he would go to such detailed lengths to accomplish our salvation. Jesus came not only to destroy the power of death, but he came to liberate us, to bring many sons to glory, as it says in Hebrews 2, 10 through 13. When you and I are tempted to feel that we are not loved or that nobody cares or that he does not care, this is the truth that refutes that lie. Second, Jesus' incarnation reminds us that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. He experienced temptation and suffering like we have yet without sin. When we are tempted to think that no one understands our sin struggle, or no one has it as bad as I have it, no one can understand my suffering, no one has been through what I've been through, Jesus has. Jesus understands. And more so, he has overcome it. And he has given us the power to overcome it also, by the Holy Spirit. I wish I actually had more time to unpack this. It's because of his incarnation, death, and resurrection that believers can be indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Think about this for a second. The very power of God in you, the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead, reminding you of the truths of Christ. He is in you with the ability to change you to be more like him. Third, Jesus' incarnation reminds us that there is a, a better way to live. I don't mean this just uh, in the sense that Jesus is a, was a moral example, but Jesus' incarnation began the restoration of God's original intent for humanity, 
Hebrews 2, 5-9. You see, Ernest Becker's words only hold true because of the fall, because of, of sin and death. And yet, if death has lost its sting, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, then when we are tempted to believe that all of this is pointless, that our labor seems to be in vain, that our suffering is in vain, this is the truth that we need to remember, that his incarnation has, has paved the way for a better way to live. He has redeemed creation. Fourth, Jesus' incarnation reminds us that his grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. When you and I are tempted to think that our sin is too great to be forgiven or that we cannot change, his incarnation reminds us that not only has he paid for our sin, he is our merciful and faithful high priest. He is uniquely qualified and has the authority to intercede for us, as it says in Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. It is because he is not only fully God, but fully man, that he is able to be the unique mediator between us and God. Colossians 1.22 says this, He has now reconciled you in his body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And finally, Jesus' incarnation reminds us that those who trust in him will one day live in the new heavens and the new earth. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 sums this all up. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor. He became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. George Guthrie puts it this way. We need a champion to storm the gates of our prisons and liberate us, ripping the keys to enslavement from the devil's grip and setting our feet on the path of true life. What is surprising is the form our champion took and the means of our liberation. The one of all power took the position of the powerless. The Lord of life drank deeply of death. Since we could not save ourselves, he did not save himself from the worst of human experiences. The limitless Lord of the universe took on limitations in order to free us from ours. And nowhere are our limitations more clearly, clearly recognized than in the face of death. Science fiction writers have often toyed with the idea that the incarnation is nothing more than um, the appearing, think, teleportation of a superior being to an inferior world. At best, writers imagine the incarnation in light of superhero culture. Jesus is some sort of alien superman who comes swiftly to rescue humanity from the brink of its own self-collapse. And we marvel at the heroics, pardon the pun. But Jesus' incarnation is none of that. Here, the son of a carpenter, God veiled in flesh, lived a human life in order to die 
the death of a common criminal. Isaiah 53 prophesied this thousands of years ago, that he was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. The Bible would pick up this imagery again in Revelation 5. Except this time, we get a glimpse of the veiled glory that is found in the enfleshed Christ. In Revelation 5, there's a scene when the scroll containing all of God's revelation is sealed with seven seals. That is the number for perfection. And John, the writer of Revelation, weeps uncontrollably as the mighty angel asks, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? John tells us in verse 3, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. But then one of the elders gathered around the throne and said, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. But just as John is straining to see a lion, this almighty, majestic, roaring king of the animal kingdom type figure, he sees a lamb standing instead, as though it had been slain. And in seeing this mystery, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Soon there were not just 24 elders but as John looked around, he heard the elders and myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands joining and singing with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. But that's still not all. Soon a chorus of every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them proclaimed to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Christ City, my hope is that this morning, as I have led you on this journey of examining the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that you would be in awe and that you too would join this chorus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Brothers and sisters, behold the mystery that is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Behold and believe in him. And most of all, may you be changed to be like him. Let's pray. Father, it is, we are in such awe to behold the mystery that is your incarnation. How can you be fully God, yet fully man? How can you be majestic and meek? 
lion and the lamb. And yet you are. And you've done that to accomplish our salvation. Lord, would you help us to live in this reality, in the reality of your incarnation being applied to our hearts? Lord, when we're tempted to think thoughts, to, to when, when these lies come into our head, may we refute them by the truths that are implied by your incarnation. And may we live knowing that your Holy Spirit, the same power that resurrected you from the dead, Jesus, is in us, that we might be changed to be like you, that you will one day present us holy and blameless before the living God. In Jesus' most precious name we pray. Amen.